You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's November 13th. As the U.S. honors the service and sacrifice of veterans this week, it's important to remember the battles facing those who serve our country, both abroad and at home. We're going to open today's show with one soldier's story. In 1983, after graduating high school, Dan Smee joined the Army as a medic. He stopped serving in 1987, but after 9-11, Smee re-enlisted with the National Guard and was deployed to Iraq. By the time he returned home, he began to experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Smee was struggling with thoughts of the friends he lost, the near misses, being blown up and shot at. Things kind of unraveled for me, he says. And to cope, he used Ambien and drank heavily. When Smee worked up the strength to seek help, he was told he needed to get sober first. Smee's experience is not uncommon. More than 10% of veterans who served in Iraq or Afghanistan developed PTSD from what they saw and experienced. And as many as 15% show signs of depression. But RAND research finds that few treatment centers out there address these conditions at the same time. And among those that do, there isn't agreement about what good treatment looks like. Fortunately, our findings also show that there are effective treatment protocols that can help veterans break the cycle. The VA and other treatment facilities should make a point of screening every incoming patient for signs of co-occurring disorders. They should evaluate both substance use and mental health outcomes regularly throughout the course of treatment. They should incorporate and accommodate veterans' treatment preferences into treatment decisions. It's worth noting that there are facilities that provide this kind of evidence-based care. In fact, Dan Smee ultimately received the treatment he needed at a residential center for veterans with co-occurring disorders. And he never looked back. Smee has been sober for 14 years. He now works as a social worker at the VA, helping veterans who are working through the same problems he experienced. Last week, voters in Oregon approved a ballot initiative legalizing use of psilocybin, the psychedelic component of magic mushrooms, in a therapeutic setting. Voters in California could soon face a similar choice, but RAND experts warn that ballot initiatives are a poor way to set drug policy, and that's especially true for psychedelics. Ballot initiatives are often written by people who prioritize repealing prohibition and generating revenue, rather than balanced approaches to regulating a drug's supply and use. And in the case of psilocybin, there's still a lot to learn about its benefits and risks. It's also important to note that once a ballot initiative passes, it could be difficult for the state legislature to make any major changes, So if policymakers want comprehensive regulation on psychedelics, they may need to achieve that through the traditional legislative process. And they may need to take action soon. There's already been an attempt to put a referendum on psychedelics on the California ballot. That effort didn't succeed. But it's likely only a matter of time before one does. About 53 million people in the U.S. provide essential care for their friends and family members, assisting with daily activities like eating, bathing, dressing, driving, and taking medications. Unfortunately, these family caregivers are too often treated as secondary members of the healthcare team. 
According to a new RAND study, there are major barriers that prevent caregivers from coordinating with formal healthcare providers. Addressing these barriers could help boost not only the quality of care, but also improve quality of life for both patients and their families. The authors identify some ways to better integrate caregivers, such as creating incentives to encourage healthcare providers to engage with caregivers and providing caregivers with access to technologies that foster information sharing with providers. This study is among the first to focus in-depth on integrating family caregivers into the healthcare team. And while more research is needed, the authors hope that it will start an important conversation about this issue. How can U.S. and Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific region be measured? What are Washington and Beijing competing over exactly? And how do different players in the region view this struggle? To answer these questions and more, RAND researchers visited nine countries and interviewed more than 100 officials and experts in 2018 and 2019. They concluded that there is no clear winner in the Indo-Pacific. Rather, each power has varying levels of influence across different nations there. For example, the U.S. has more influence than China in Australia, India, Japan, the Philippines, and Singapore, similar influence in Indonesia, and relatively less influence than China in Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. There are also key differences in the type of influence that each country has. China appears to exert more economic influence, while the U.S. shows more diplomatic and military sway. Notably, Partners in the region generally value economic development over security concerns. 13 million acres burned. 14,000 structures destroyed. $3 billion on efforts to keep the blaze at bay. The 2020 fire season is the worst on record. And according to Jay Balagna of the Party Rand Graduate School and Rand's Aaron Clark Ginsburg, it's more evidence that the American West needs a comprehensive fire strategy if it's going to survive. There are many individuals and organizations doing good work to battle the fires. Wildland firefighters, community organizations, government agencies, research groups. But what's lacking is coordination. Plus, the current approach doesn't account for the complexities of these disasters. Climate change, forest mismanagement, aging infrastructure, population concentrations in high-risk areas, and other factors all play a role in shaping the risk of wildfires. Mitigating this risk will require intervention at every point. For example, vulnerable areas that haven't burned yet could be identified and treated. Clear and prompt evacuation messaging for when fires are burning could be prepared well in advance. And new ideas could be solicited for where and how to rebuild. Solutions like these, which focus on mitigation and preparedness, might be what it takes to get back to building a sustainable West. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.